0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansbury Radio Network. Okay, so this is James Altucher, and I am honored to be joined on this episode of the James Altucher Show with Clayton Anderson former astronaut clay you were an astronaut for 15 years right 15 that's right and you spent 167 days in space total over uh two spacewalk or two uh space missions i want to i want to read one letter that you got uh just to kind of set the the scene here you got this letter from i guess nasa in 1996 and it says dear clay Thank you for applying for the Astronaut Candidate Program. We certainly regretted having to inform you that you were not selected for the program. 25 mission specialists and 10 pilot astronaut candidates were selected from over 2,400 applicants. Competition for the program was, again, extremely keen, and the limited number of openings precluded many high-qualified individuals, such as yourself, from being selected. How did you feel uh, you didn't not only get this letter, you got this letter for 15 years in a row.
1: Well, not exactly, because that year, the only reason I got the letter was because I made it far enough to get an interview. If you don't make it to that level, they don't send you anything.
0: Really? So, they they just ignore you? Well, no. <laughs> I guess that's 2,400 they, letters. They don't want to waste the paper. Probably. They, uh, they
1: send you a, a card, a small uh, index card that says, We've received your application. Thanks for playing. And then we'll be in touch. And then if you are fortunate enough to make it through all those other rounds to get to the point where they have brought you to Houston and interviewed you and talked to you and seen you and done spent money on you for tests, then you don't get selected. That's when they send you a letter like that. So the first time I was interviewed was year 13, so that's the first time I got that letter.
0: So but my answer to
1: the letter was... Boo.
0: You felt you were close. You I mean you were brought? You were brought there. You got through all the tests. You thought you were super close. Uh, so it must have been like—I mean, were you expecting to get uh, accepted then? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. You know, back then, I hoped to be accepted.
1: I don't know if I ever expected to be selected. You know, it was one of those deals where uh, after. 12 years of applications in the 13th year I got offered an interview I was very very excited and the flame was relit you know I was ready to quit uh, as a matter of fact my wife and I had been in Seattle just prior to that interview request looking for work so uh, when I came back to Houston from that trip to Seattle a phone call was uh, received a couple days later saying hey can you come for an interview well to hell with Seattle right now I'm back in the game so I took the interview to see how it would go.
0: What were you gonna do in Seattle? Like work for Starbucks or Microsoft? <clears throat> well, yeah, maybe. I don't know. We were just, you know, trolling. <laughs> uh huh. And so, so you first applied then what year? Like nineteen eighty three, eighty four. Yes. Uh
1: huh. When I was first eligible.
0: And what happened then? Like you, who do you apply to even to be an astronaut? Well, um, that's like good. It's not like there's a classified ad. Like we need astronauts. Please send resume. Actually, it's a good
1: chapter in my upcoming book that comes out in June, June the 1st, The Ordinary Spaceman. There's a chapter called, Hey, There's an App for That. And uh, it talks about the application process. So in this day of computers and stuff, you go to usajobs.gov and you can go to the nasa.gov website and you can search on astronaut application and it will point you in the right direction. So unless they're looking for astronauts, though, that site part is not active, I think. Think that you have to wait until you know that they're looking for astronauts, which is pretty well advertised.
0: So, so, what were you doing before then that you became aware that oh, oh, there's an opening for an astronaut?
1: Well, in those days it was different. In those days, uh, way back in the early '80s, they uh, asked for applications every year, and you updated your application. If you put your app in, they updated it the next. You updated the next year. And then that way you were constantly in the game. And then at that time, they were selecting astronauts on an annual basis. And then when Challenger happened, it went from an annual basis to an every two-year basis selection. So they were still very frequently looking for astronauts because there were so many launching on the shuttles and things. So in today's world, there are only 40-some, 42, 43 astronauts American today. And they only go look for astronauts, new astronauts, when they feel that they need them to fill that cadre. So uh, the selections are few and far between. And rather than picking 20 to 30 astronauts, they're picking, you know, 6 to 10.
0: Oh, my gosh. So what kind of skills do you think you need now to be an astronaut? Because I'm assuming even more people apply now.
1: Yeah, the last application, I think, when they use social media to get the word out, which is also different from when I was applying. The The number of applications went up into the 4,500 range, maybe even higher to 5,000, right? That many people want to be an astronaut. <clears throat> and so uh, they only picked eight this last time, so the odds are pretty stiff. Um, but the skills you need are the same. You need to be a good team player. You need to be a, above average intelligence. You don't have to be a genius, in my opinion. Otherwise, I never would have been selected. Uh, you need to have a, a degree in the physical sciences. You need to be a healthy person. Your eyesight needs to be reasonable and correctable. Uh, you so can't, no glasses allowed? Well, actually, no. It's new now. You can have LASIK surgery and be selected as an astronaut. Uh, in the old days, you had to have correctable to 20-20 vision, and that's still the case. But if you correct it via LASIK surgery, uh, that's acceptable to them now. So... Uh, Things like that have changed, but other things have not. You you know you can't have had a kidney stone in your past. Uh, you know you they're going to be worried about your heart condition and, and cancer and histories and things like that in your family. So the bottom line is is you always apply. Don't ever tell yourself I can't get in because let them tell you I can't get in because right because you don't know what they're looking for and what they're thinking. So I would encourage everybody to always apply and let NASA put the X across your name. Don't you ever put the X there.
0: I sort of feel like you're giving advice, not just for NASA, but for anything. Like, would you recommend that for, like, let's say I wanted to be an engineer at Google or something like that.
1: Absolutely. You know, that's the story of my life is, you know, I call the book The Ordinary Spaceman because I'm I'm an ordinary guy. I'm a small town kid from the Midwest who, You know, I was reasonably intelligent, but I wasn't a genius by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I dreamed of being a fighter pilot, but my eyes weren't good enough. Uh, You know, and then one day I ended up uh, floating around the world as a United States astronaut because I didn't give up. I never quit. I worked hard, I I dreamed big. Uh, I had a little luck along the way. I had the help of some of my friends and peers, but you know, that applies to anything in the world, and, and that's one of the issues I have today is kids aren't encouraged like that enough. You know, <clears throat> you, you have to have uh, an environment where it your dream is what your dream is, and you can achieve anything you want to be if you're willing to put in the effort to do so. Well,
0: and, so oh, go ahead.
1: And, to, and today, too many kids stop short, I think, for whatever reason, and... They may be discouraged by a teacher. They may be discouraged by a friend, an adult, you know, but we have to be an encouraging society. You know, that's why I hope my book will be successful, that that story can apply to thousands of kids across the Midwest that go to small schools all across America.
0: I think also, you know, you have to be in a supportive environment. Like, obviously, your wife was not saying, oh, Clay, give up already. Don't apply again. Like she probably maybe some years she was saying, hey, get the application in earlier. Like she probably was right behind you on every application.
1: Yeah. And that family aspect is huge, you know, and today uh, there's there is an issue with the American family component in places. and, And I had the love and the respect and the encouragement of my wife and my kids. Right. You know, when I was first training to go into space, I was away from home every other month in Russia. And I had a six-year-old daughter and a 10-year-old son who would grab at my pant legs on the day I was to leave and cry and say, hey, Dad, don't go, don't go. We don't want you to leave. And those are hard things to overcome, and, and those are the stories that people don't necessarily hear. Uh, sometimes sacrifice is required to achieve those dreams, and the way you uh, make that sacrifice and the people that sacrifice with you are hugely important as to your mental makeup and your strength and your confidence and the ability to do the job.
0: Well, and, and I think I know the answer to this, but I want to hear it in your words. Like you said that your 10 year old boy would be crying while you were about to leave for, I guess, four to six weeks for these training programs. How did you, you know, you know, we never get those years back with our kids. So how did you kind of balance off? Like, obviously you wanted to be a good father how did you b- balance off your passion with also trying well, to be a good father?
1: Well, it was important then that when I came home, uh, I spent tons of time with the kids and I tried to be as, at as many of their activities as I could be. Uh, you know, my wife would send videos of my son playing Little League football and baseball to me and my daughter in her gymnastics and her uh, cheerleading efforts. Uh, so we were trying to stay in constant communication. And, and back then, like you and I are Skyping today, well, that wasn't necessarily as straightforward then as it is now. And I remember being just madder in hell in Russia because the computer they gave me in my Russian cottage that was supposed to be exactly like the one at my desk at NASA wouldn't allow me to do a video conference with my wife because the Russians had blocked the ports that would allow the signal to leave, you know? And and all that stuff was just hugely frustrating to me that it wasn't simpler, and, and I had to work very hard to, to be able to communicate with my family. So those were again sacrifices that had to be over, or uh, uh, blockades that had to be overcome. And so my focus when I returned back to America was family first, right? And it's always been that way: God, then family, then then job. Um, and my family was very understanding that they knew that I wanted to do this with all my heart. And so their willingness to sacrifice dad being away uh, was important. I knew they cared and that helped me do my job effectively. I mean, imagine if I was doing all this and my wife and my kids were PO'd because they didn't want dad to be an astronaut. They didn't want dad to be leaving all the time. I mean, that would be a, a terrible environment to try to focus and learn and, and learn all the things I needed to know to fly in space it's so hard. It would be so hard to do that work, knowing that my family was angry with me. Well,
0: how do you think? So, so starting in 1984, I guess you started getting rejected year after year. How did you? How did you sort of? Okay, you would get the rejection postcard or whatever. How would you decide? Okay, now for the next. 365 days i'm gonna improve in this way to give myself greater chances like how would you increase your odds well
1: there are certain things you can do you can always do you i could go climb mount everest if i wanted to to help improve my odds right but that was not something that i had ever dreamed of doing of wanting to do however i did want to learn to scuba dive that's something i wanted to do my whole life i did want to learn how to fly an airplane and those things are positives if you put those on your application to be an astronaut, are they required? Absolutely not. Do they make you look a little better? Sure they do. But I also was very, very active in my church and in my community. Uh, I was active with my kids in little league and that sort of thing. And so for me, I wanted to do things that I love to do regardless of whether or not they would enhance my chances to become an astronaut. So some people, they lay their life out exactly as they want to be selected as an astronaut. You know, I'm going to go to MIT and get my degree and whatever. And then when I graduate from there, I'm going to go to this university and get a PhD in this. Then I'm going to learn to scuba dive. Then I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro. Then I'm going to come back and work for Boeing or Lockheed or somebody for two years. Then I'm going to get another PhD. And then I'm going to go, do, you know, they just lay their life out with discrete milestones that they must achieve in their mind to become an astronaut. And, you know, that's okay. But what happens if you fail at one of those milestones, right? Now your whole plan is broken. And so I encourage people to find out what they love to do. What are you passionate about? If you do what you're passionate about, it doesn't matter if you never get selected to be an astronaut, right? You're still working at a job you love and you're doing the best you can possibly do. To be picked as an astronaut takes a huge amount of luck and being in the right place at the right time. And so to, to set a recipe for that selection is, is nearly impossible.
0: And so along the way, and I was reading this in your bio, you, you were an aquanaut before you were an astronaut. So like you said, you learned to scuba dive and you actually spent a significant amount of time underwater. Was it? Yes.
1: But that was after I was selected
0: to become
1: an astronaut. So it was
0: part of the training process
1: in order to live and work in space. You know, you're in a stressful place. Uh, with a few other people and they wanted to find ways to uh, train astronauts on Earth and give them a taste of what it's like to live in space. And one of the clever ways was the idea of Aquarius, the habitat in Key Largo, Florida. What if we sent a few astronauts to live there for a couple, three weeks in a small can, in an extreme environment with other people trying to do work away from their families you know, all that is a great analogy to what it was like to live and work in space. So I was fortunate enough to get that opportunity before I ever flew uh, to kind of let me know what it was going to be like when I eventually did fly.
0: So, so again, it seems like uh, in the you know years of your, your 15 years of trying of, of, of applying for <coughs> to be an astronaut, you had this. Rather than having a very fixed goal, I have to be an astronaut or I will be unhappy, you had kind of an umbrella theme. I'm just going to keep doing these things within this umbrella of astronauthood that I love doing, and that will bring me closer and closer, perhaps, to this one goal. But you had other goals, too, within here. It was all fit under this umbrella.
1: Yeah, my my overall umbrella goal was I wanted to work for NASA. I loved the NASA. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Uh, I wanted to be a part of that. And the fact that I got to come to Houston in the Johnson Space Center to do that was kind of frosting on the cake. Because if I never was selected as an astronaut, I was still happy as a clam working with the astronauts, working in the same places, all those people that were sending folks to the moon and sending shuttles into space and designing space stations and all that. I was a part of that. And that was very, very rewarding to me. And if I did good, if I worked hard and did well in the assignments that they gave me to do that job, I hope that I would at least have a chance uh, to be selected as an astronaut. And, uh, you know, in that 15 years I was an engineer here, there were probably maybe two, three at the most astronauts that would even know what my name was. You know, I didn't didn't hang with them. I didn't uh, go out drinking with them. You know, I played softball against some of them. We usually kick their butt. and uh, <clears throat> But, you know, I knew a few of them from work I was doing. We were on a project together, but that's all. And I didn't try to be a groupie with them and, you know, suck up and stuff like that. I just tried to do my job as best I could do it and then submit my application and see if it fell out that, that I would be worthy of selection.
0: Were, were there groupies in the sense that, like, were the astronauts the kings walking around NASA at that time? Yeah.
1: Oh, to some people, I think they were the kings and queens. <laughs> you know, I had a boss tell me one time, if you really want to be an astronaut, you have to hang out at the Outpost Tavern more, and you need to become a, a mission operations flight controller, a guy that sits in the control center in the front room. He says, if you don't do those two things, you'll never be an astronaut. Well, I didn't do either of those things, and <laughs> look now, baby.
0: <laughs> well, why didn't you do those things? You just didn't want to? They weren't me, yeah. right?
1: I don't go hang out in taverns with anyone, yeah. you know, I might go have a drink with my family or with some friends, but that's not my style, uh, you know, and, and to, to be in the operational part of the control center. that was something that did appeal to me, but the organization I was working in, we didn't provide those people. I would have had to move uh, to a new organization and, and a funny story, or at least an interesting story is at one point in my career, I did finally move to that organization and i had a really great job but it wasn't a job that was would put me in the control center it put me in the in the background and i really was good at that job i really enjoyed that job and so when i had the opportunity to actually apply to become a flight controller and sit in the front room and and work with all those talented people i i turned them down hmm. i kept the job that i loved
0: hmm. you know um a lot of times when i'm talking to people and i i think when i was talking to uh Robert Greene, who wrote the book uh, Mastery, I say I asked him how do people find out what they're passionate about, and he often says, "Go back to when you were ten years old, and what were you fascinated by? What were you What were you interested in?" And you mentioned earlier uh, this was the, NASA was the organization that, as you put it, put folks on the moon. They put a, a guy on the moon exactly when you were ten years old. So. <laughs> was this kind of like a triggering of triggering event for you? Like, were you fixated on the TV when this was happening?
1: Uh, absolutely. So, um, as I point out in my shamelessly plug,
0: Oh, we'll, we'll definitely plug this book. Don't worry. I'm going to read it uh, backwards and forwards. Okay. So, uh, when I was
1: nine, uh, My parents, my mom and dad, awakened my brother and sister and I on Christmas Eve in 1968 because that was the night that the Apollo 8 astronauts would go behind the moon for the first time. So sitting with my brother and sister on a small throw rug in front of a black and white TV in the small town of Ashland, Nebraska, we watched uh, the Apollo 8 crew go from yakking with the control center team to total silence and, and, and just static. So for the 10 to 15 minutes that there was static coming through, you know, I was freaking out. I shoot. I didn't know what happened to these guys. Nobody knew. Right. And then I came around the other side of that rock. Man, when I heard the t- Quindar tone go and they spoke to the control center again, I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. And my mother would tell you that it was two or three years earlier that that was the case that I talked. We discussed that I would become an astronaut. And, you know, I don't even remember that part, but she certainly did. She always told people about that story. So between that and the the Apollo 8 guys going behind the moon, that's when I was hooked. Well, as a kid, you know, you have that dream and you get into high school in real life and you begin to see, well, that's going to be kind of tough. So one of the other things I was passionate about was athletics and sports. And so doing those kind of things were uh, what led me in as a freshman in college to consider being an athletic coach and a teacher. Um, But through a a series of happenstance activities, you know, I ended up uh, with a summer internship at the Johnson Space Center in Houston with NASA. And like I said, that's all I ever wanted was to be with NASA. And everything else above that was frosting on the cake.
0: And so when you finally got that letter that said, you know, hey, welcome to the program, <laughs> you know, show up at this time, what, what was your first reaction? Uh, you know,
1: I was thrilled. I, I had a hint that it was coming. Uh, my wife and I were uh, at an event prior to the announcement of all the new astronaut candidates, and a lot of people were saying really bizarre stuff to me, like, you know. What? like, uh, Hey, you're going to be in Houston this week. And, you know, don't get too far from your phone. And, you know, like, Hey, it's okay to relax. What the hell does that mean? You know? Well, I, I kind of thought I knew what it meant, but I said, no way, there's no way I'm not going to get myself pumped up for something only to be rejected again. And so I kind of put it out of sight, out of mind. And, and, uh, you know, when the call came and, and my wife and I were, uh, Uh, totally alone at the Canaveral lock station, looking at manatees, you know, we couldn't run outside and say, Hey everybody, I'm an astronaut because there was nobody there. The manatees, we told them but they didn't really care. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, to get that letter a couple weeks later and tell me my report date and what I was supposed to do. uh, uh, That was pretty cool. Um, It it just started a, a wonderful adventure.
0: Who was the first person you called and said, Hey, I did. Did you call your mom? Well, I called mom first and she
1: was gone. I called my brother second and he was gone. I called my sister third and she was gone. Oh, <laughs> well, then I called my father-in-law. You know, my father had passed away, uh, in 1984. Mm. Um, and so my father-in-law had, had allowed me, if you will, to, you know, I called him dad and he, he treated me like his son. And, and so he was the guy that we picked up the phone, we called him in Arkansas and he answered the phone and I gave him the news and there was silence on the phone and sobbing at the other end. So yeah. it was it was pretty awesome to, that he would be the first one to to hear me say that.
0: That's so great that he was so so proud.
1: Absolutely uh you know uh and he was as supportive and excited as anyone and you know he, he wears his uh his STS-117 cap everywhere he goes with all his pins stuck in the bill, you know. (laughs) So he looks like a a NASA geek, but that's okay. He's my father-in-law.
0: So now once you got there and you knew you were kind of in the astronaut program, you know, happiness of of achieving a goal only lasts so long. Now then there's the next goal, which is actually getting you into space. Was that uh, a kind of new set of, uh, you know, metrics you kind of had to achieve and goals you had to achieve in order to, to reach that next level?
1: Sure. Uh, you know, it's very competitive, despite what anyone tells you. There's, you, you know, we hired uh, 32 type A personalities that year in 98, you know, 25 Americans and uh, the rest of them were internationals. Uh, but they're all brilliant people. They're very capable, very highly skilled and talented and and You know, if they all were under sodium pentothal, they'd tell you what's your next goal. I want to be the first guy in this class to get assigned to fly. And I was the same. Perhaps I wasn't quite as aggressive as some. You know, there's kind of a bell curve of aggression where um, some at the far right of the bell curve really go after it. And they're sucking everybody, you know, sucking up to everybody and trying to do the right thing and volunteering for everything. And then there's the guys at the back end of the bell curve that maybe take it a little less. And then there's those of us in the middle. So the idea that I try to subscribe to is I always want to be just slightly above average, right? Because if you consider 32 geniuses and I'm slightly above average, that's pretty good. Um, And the other mantra that veteran astronauts sometimes tell you is keep your head down and keep coloring. And so that's code word for, you know, don't stand out too much. Don't be a, You know, a a jerk, and don't don't be discovered for the wrong reason, if if that makes any
0: sense. So, so it seems like this strategy of slightly above average, but let's combine that with consistency. So, if you're slightly above average every single day, and someone is kind of all the way out there on the bell curve of aggression, they might burn out, or as you say, they might stand out in the wrong way. But if you're if you're there every day, slightly above average, that is kind of almost a way of Uh, compounding your uh, uh, possibility of of making it into space.
1: Yeah, that was kind of my philosophy, right? Is, uh, you know, when you're a baby astronaut, what people want as a baby astronaut is everybody wants to do a spacewalk or everybody wants to be assigned to the flight deck of a shuttle crew or everybody wants to run the robotic arm, right? Well, everybody can't do that right away. But we had guys lobbying for those jobs right off the bat. Well, I just took the job they gave me, right? I did what I was told. I went to the courses I was told to, or the classes I was to, told to go to. I tried to do my best. I studied reasonably hard. Uh, I probably didn't study as hard as some. I probably started studied harder than others. But, you know, my goal was to be solid and steady, be the steady Eddie, not be the the blip on the, on the map, on the radar. And I think that paid off for me. You know, over time, people began to see that I was a good team player, that I was a leader, that I didn't need to be told what to do. Uh, and I was good at what I did. Uh, also I was six foot tall and about 195 pounds of pretty good muscle. I worked out all the time. So when the people that eventually looked at who should we put in spacewalk training, well, they looked down the line, they saw this six foot tall football, basketball track player from college and said, Hey, he might be good. When I finally got that opportunity, I was good. So, um, you know, patience is a virtue in this game. Uh, and sometimes people don't exhibit that, that patience. Most of the time they do. These, these people are really smart folk and they know how the game is played because there is a game that gets played and, and you just have to be smart. You know, it's more of the tortoise and the hare, right? The, the slow and steady. I think, wins the race, and eventually, whether you're the first guy to fly or the last guy to fly, is irrelevant. The goal is you want to fly, and then you want to fly again.
0: And so so once you um, became uh, in the astronaut program, how long was it until you were actually in space? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so from 1998 when I was selected and I finally went into space in 2007, which is quite a long time to wait. Uh, there have been astronauts that waited longer. Uh, there have been astronauts that flew much quicker. Uh, I, I have no idea why, uh, you know, it's just, it's just the way the game went, you know, and there were a lot of astronauts in the 96 class, uh, a lot of astronauts in the 98 class and over time, the classes, the, the astronauts that were selected earliest flew first. Right. And so the class of 96, most of them all flew before the class of 98 even got assigned, Right. There's kind of a hierarchy there, but that's not even the case these days. Sometimes uh, new classes, they put some person in there to fly before somebody from the previous class goes. And that kind of breaks with tradition and it's been hard to stomach by some.
0: And so when you got the message, okay, you know, Clay, we're going to we're going to put you on this mission. You're going to go into space. That must have been another moment uh, where it was like this is going to happen. Well, you'd think so, but it didn't actually turn out that way. So
1: at the time, um, you could either fly on the shuttle or the station. And my thought was it would be best for me and my family if I flew a short two-week shuttle mission, right? We'd understand what it's like. We'd get a feeling for the stresses involved and all that sort of stuff. And then I'd come back, be a big hero, and then somebody would assign me to the station for long duration. Well, it happened in the opposite direction. I got a call one weekend, not from the boss. Usually the story goes that astronauts get called by the boss, and he tells them of their flight assignment. Uh, I got called by the boss's deputy, and the question she asked me was, uh, hey, uh, you still interested in maybe doing a long duration space flight? And I go, well, yeah. Well, you know, uh, yeah, we've been talking, and, and you, might, you might get uh, penciled in here as uh, such and such and such and such, and, and uh, you might want to call the boss. Oh, I I got to call the boss? So <clears throat> I called the boss, you know, and I said, hey, so-and-so told me to call you about flight assignments. He goes, yeah, yeah, you are kind of thinking about you a little bit and and um, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, which one gets me to space faster? Because we just had Columbia, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and will a shuttle assignment get me into space faster or a space station assignment? He goes, well, you know, actually, I think maybe a space station assignment will get you into space quicker. So I said, okay, let me talk to my wife. I went back and talked to Susan because the kids were young enough at the time. At that time, they were even younger than six and ten. And so we felt it was a good time to to begin this trips to Russia all the time because that way the kids wouldn't be quite so aware. And we agreed to go. We agreed to do it. So shortly thereafter, I began, you know, training for all those trips to Russia and back and forth, and, and I was still only a backup. I wasn't even assigned to a flight, you know. It didn't happen the way I dreamed of, of it happening. Uh, I kind of fell into it uh, with time, so much so that I had to ask for a press release to be uh, released. I mean, it was it was kind of crazy. It was different, and you contrast that to my flight on STS-131. When I got called down the office, I thought I was going to get my butt chewed. Uh, Why do you and, think that? Because uh, a couple things had happened. I'm kind of an outspoken guy. And uh, when I think the processes can be improved, I speak out. And it turns out that I spoke out as a member of the uh, crew of Expedition 15 in 2007 and returned to Earth uh, in the astronaut penalty box. And uh, so when I was called down that day, I was still, to my knowledge, in the astronaut penalty box. And uh, when I stepped into the boss's office and I said, what did I do now? And he said, no, 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 you didn't do anything. You're fine. And and, uh, he said, I want to give you an assignment. And I said, what? You want to send me to Florida, California, what? And He goes, no, a space flight assignment. And I said, you're kidding. Really? I'm on probation. And no, you're not. And so he assigned me to STS-131. And when I learned who the crewmates were, I was so excited. That was how it was supposed to happen, right? So then, I'm all excited. I call my wife and I, I act depressed and I say, "I got to talk to you right now. Can you meet me out by the ponds? There's a nice little seating area at, at JSC." And and she met me and she was freaking out. You know, she thought I'd been, you know, kicked out of the astronaut corps. And, and I told her I was we were going to fly again. And, and uh, when I told her who the commander was, she was really close to the commander's wife. So it was it was a great day. That was how it was supposed to happen the first time, but but it actually didn't.
0: But now the first time you were in space for what, 157 days, something like that. 152. 152. Sorry, and uh, that strikes me as—I don't think personally I would be able to handle that, just because A. I'd miss my family, <coughs> and B. I don't know if I could handle being like in essentially a room for 152 days.
1: Well, it's a pretty big room.
0: Uh. I guess they say
1: today it's about like a four-bedroom house with two bathrooms. Um, Actually, it's quite comfortable to live there. Um, I never had any claustrophobic tendencies while I was there. Um, You know, sometimes you wish you look out the window and you long to be be able to smell the grass and the breeze and the ocean and that sort of thing. But um, for me, the 152 days went by very quickly. I only had two days that I remember I was actually bored. Uh, so bored that I fired up Tiger Woods uh, golf software program, you know, and tried to play golf with Tiger Woods and that didn't go over too well. So I gave up on that, but um, it's a, it's a large place. You can get away if you need to, you know, if you need that space where you need to just be alone, which I needed a few times. So uh, it's actually quite comfortable to live there uh, for an extended period. Now, I think My wife and I chatted about this afterwards or toward the end of my first flight that six months we could have handled, another month maybe, maybe a month and a half. But after that, it would have have gotten difficult for both of us, her on the ground with family and me uh, in space uh, away from the family. So they do a great job of giving us opportunities to have video conferences with our family every week. I could pick up a telephone software program and call Susan, my wife, every day. Uh, I could call friends and family if the signals were aligned. So you have a lot and you have email, constant email uh, capability and things like that. So you're not as essentially far removed as people may think. Now, if you go to the planet Mars, eventually it's going to be a a whole different ballgame. But uh, being on the station was was very cool. Uh, If I were to do a year's long mission like the astronaut Scott Kelly went up, I think he's going to be bored out of his brain. But that's just me.
0: So so you get on the station and then there's the next goal, which is doing a spacewalk. Um, how long did it take before you were like out there by yourself, just in the vast infinite of space? Well, I got to
1: space on June the 8th and did our first spacewalk on the 23rd of July. And the increment, the five months I was there was really, really well timed out. It just happened that way. I got, I got lucky. You know, I arrived and had a very busy mission with the guys that brought me there. Uh, once they left, I tidied up from from all their messes, and then the next thing we focused on our spacewalk prep. We did our spacewalk in July, and the next thing we did was focus on a shuttle that was coming to visit us in August. And then once those guys were gone, we focused on our next big event, which was moving the um, docking uh, structure from the station with the robotic arm. And then after that was over, we focused on me going home. So. The spacing of my increment was just perfect in terms of I always had something big to look forward to. That helped us not get bored and not go crazy. So when July was coming, my first spacewalk, that was a pretty intense time of preparation and and excitement and and actually going out into space.
0: And uh, uh, how did you. Sorry. Oh, No problem. Sounded like R two D two there. That's our parrot. Oh, Uh, Astro. How did you um? How did you actually get home?
1: Well, um, I was scheduled uh, at that time. We had what we called Shrek's uh, shuttle rotating expedition crew members. So Sonny Williams was Shrek one, and I was Shrek two, just like in the movies. And we were tied as shuttle crew members that were tied to a piece of station hardware that was being delivered by the shuttle. So we had intimate knowledge of that piece of hardware that we were flying with. And so as part of that, then we would ride home on a shuttle. And for me, that meant STS 120, that crew with commander Pam Melroy was going to come bring me home. They launched in October of 2007 and we landed in November of
0: 2007. Were you scared at all of, re-entry like the whole you know heat shield thing
1: no i Was think
0: even a moment of fear
1: no uh i think you think about it a little bit but you're so busy and you're so wrapped up in the moment that you don't uh the fear is trained out of you first of all right and then where you are you're you're just a passenger so it's like being on an airplane in, in the back if something's happening there's not a whole lot you can do about it. So out of sight, out of mind, probably. And and believing that those thousands of people on the ground have done everything in their power to make it safe and bring you home safely. So there's way more reason to be confident than there is to be scared.
0: And once you had gotten into space, what was the thing that maybe surprised you the most? Despite all the training, all the years, all the studying, what just sort of blew you away that, this is unlike anything you had ever experienced before. Uh, a couple things, probably zero gravity is the first thing. I mean, living, Even though you had simulated for that probably many times. Yeah.
1: I mean, you can't simulate it when you're going to the bathroom in zero gravity. You can't simulate living every minute, right? You can fly in the airplane that gives you 30 seconds, maybe, mm-hmm. but it's not the same, right? It, it's not the same to wake up to sleep to float out, to go fly down and go to the bathroom and to float to work. And I mean, you're Superman every day. And that ability is, it's really hard to describe. And and it's one of the most fun and most complex things about living in space is the fact that you're not, uh, you don't have any weight. You're just floating all the time.
0: Was it ever kind of depressing in the sense that every physical activity you had been used to Going to the bathroom, showering, eating, drinking, you know, scratching the itch on your nose, everything was different and had to be overcome. It was an obstacle to overcome?
1: Um, It was. Uh, some things were harder to overcome than others, but I, I didn't ever think of it as a big pain. I, I always found it to be an interesting challenge. Yeah, I'd be frustrated because it's easy to lose stuff. You know, if you Velcro a tool to the wall and you spin too fast accidentally and your shirt hits that tool by accident, you know, you may not even know that you've imparted a, a force to it that's now sending it floating out of the way and you don't know where it went. Huh. And looking for stuff you've lost, that can be frustrating. So maybe that's the frustrating thing that that everybody deals with. But most of it, zero G is a blast.
0: Now, one thing I read um, was that you, you grow under zero G, I guess because your bones stretch out.
1: Mm-hmm yeah the the fact that there's no force from gravity on your spine uh means that most astronauts will s- stretch a little bit in that area which makes them a little taller so I think I probably gained an inch to an inch and a half to an inch and three quarters
0: and and how long after you landed did you get back to regular height? Well, nobody gets measured immediately
1: so but it's pretty fast you know once gravity's tugging on you. Uh, and your, your spine and everything back there is pretty malleable. So uh, that force pulls it down pretty quickly.
0: Does it does it hurt when you're back in regular gravity in the sense that you're like, what is this? I'm now I'm now being compelled to stand on the ground. Yeah, I didn't hurt. I don't think, you know, I hadn't sat down in five months
1: and sitting was a pain uh walking was difficult at first but your brain is pretty effective at figuring it out and bringing you back to normal pretty fast most of the problem for me was i was exhausted you know we'd had a long day in space and then we land and had even a longer day on earth and so i was just ready to go to sleep and after 24 hours i was much much better
0: and what so now uh veering in a slightly different direction. What's going to happen to the space program now? So, so basically, we're we're outsourcing to companies like SpaceX. Do you see less humans going into space and more robotics? Like, what's what's the direction of things?
1: Um, The outsourcing, I think, is a good thing overall. Right? It's like the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk when they were flying their little airplane 122 feet across the beach. They had no idea that United and Delta and KLM and all that would be flying people around the world every day. So from that perspective, it's the right direction that we should be moving. The question here is, again, as with anything, is we have to be able to do it safely and, and with a competitive price, right? If it's going to cost everybody 250000 to $20 million or whatever to go into space, there aren't many people that are capable of doing that. And for me, the goal is that everyone should have an opportunity somehow to at least... Um, be able to get there in some part and that's coming. It's just going to take a while. Uh, and, you know, space hotels, I think they're in the future. I think uh, commercial people going up for little weekends in Johnson space, that's in the future. I just don't know when, because we have to remember as virtue of the orbital uh, and flight that exploded off the pad the other day, this is hard. What we do is hard and, what we do is expensive and what we do is complex and t- today's people want things now, right? They want their DVR. Oh, my DVR broke. I run out to Best Buy and I buy a new one and I plug it in. And I'm ready to go. I haven't missed a beat. You know, well, spaceflight, you can't really do that. It's a little tougher than that. So
0: and, and what do you think about uh, Mars? Is that in the uh, hundred year future, 10 year future? Like, is that possible?
1: Yeah, I think so. I don't know what 100 or 10 years. I, I don't know which, but it's possible. But I don't think we're ready yet. Um, for example, when people ask me about Mars, if I were to go personally, I would need a vehicle that was at least the size of three space station modules. Hmm. And in order for me to be successful and to to do be comfortable, hold on, the doors keep
0: opening. <laughs> no problem. No uh, problem. It's amazing how much your bird sounds like R2D2. I just keep thinking of yeah. Star Wars there.
1: Yeah, that, hey, whatever works. But um the uh the commercial idea is the right idea.
0: And uh What do you mean the commercial idea? The idea of outsourcing the trip to Mars? Well, the easy stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And I call it easy,
1: but outsource the stuff that that you're comfortable they can do safely and efficiently. Which is what we're doing with cargo delivery, right? To outsource it to SpaceX and to Orbital and to other companies like that, that removes the burden from NASA and allows us to focus on other things like going to Mars. But SpaceX and Orbital have to continue to demonstrate that they can do it safely and efficiently and for lower cost. Well, all that was going really well until Orbital's rocket blew up off the pad. So they're going to fix that. They're going to solve that. But what does that do to the overall market you know, the overall thought process of commercial uh, space flight with contractors like that. So, you know, it just remains to be seen. You know, imagine if somebody, if humans would have been on that rocket, you know, where we'd be.
0: Right. <clears throat> now, what would be, be? Let, let's say, I'd what say. would be your advice now to young kids who want not necessarily a career as an astronaut, but any highly competitive career like obviously you were in one of the most competitive careers of of history what what would be your advice to a a 10 year old now starting out who who has one of one of these types of dreams and this seems kind of like almost a naive question but it's one i'm sure every parent is probably curious about
1: well i think that the advice you gave from the, the guy that wrote the book is look back at what you love to do when you're 10 and then You have to be a solid student. You know, you can't blow things off. And I encourage kids to be very well-rounded. I think personally, this is just Clay talking, that well-rounded people make better citizens. So, for example, and I don't mean to be negative in any way, but the fact that I was good in school and was good in sports and was good in music and did a lot of things helped me become the person I am today. Does that make me better than the person that gets straight A's at school and just plays the violin? I don't know. But from a big picture standpoint, well-roundedness experiences, you know, facing adversity in many different regimes is important to making you strong, making you a better team player, making you more independent and confident with the ability to overcome that adversity. And I think those are important traits for anybody who has a dream, if they want to be an NBA basketball star or a, or a police officer or a teacher or a lawyer or a doctor or an eye surgeon, all those things are awesome dreams. And they can achieve them with hard work and dedication. But I think you'll achieve them more effectively if you are, are full of breadth and depth. And depth. That makes
0: sense. I, I like the phrase facing adversity as opposed to um, overcoming failure. I think there's too much what I call failure porn out there right now where you have to kind of like uh, fail fast, fail hard, you know, fail a lot to achieve success. I don't necessarily agree that that failure is the key to success.
1: Yeah, I think that I I know where you're coming from. I've heard that a lot, too. And and failure, you don't want to fail. Who wants to fail? Right. But you always face adversity. I mean, every day you face adversity, right? If you get a knot when you're tying your shoe, that's adversity. It's a very small example, but it is. Yeah. And what do some people do? They get frustrated, they yell and scream, and they can't get the dang knot out. Well, face adversity and and use your fingers, and or go get a tool and take the knot out and retie your shoe. How you deal with stuff that little leads to how you deal with stuff that's big. And and I and I agree with you. I think that. Facing adversity is much more appropriate than <clears throat> telling people you must fail in order to succeed. Well, yeah, I think you will fail in, in certain aspects of life, but sometimes that doesn't matter. You know, it, it's how you deal with with the adversity that took you to that failure and, and figure out ways to to get around it.
0: Now uh, uh, a final question or two, I, and, I'm, and I really appreciate the, the time you spent with me. But what's um, yeah. what's your favorite space movie? <laughs> did you like Gravity with um, uh, was George Clooney? I forget the actress's name now. Uh, See, I
1: forget George Clooney's name because Sandra Bullock and Spanx was pretty good. <laughs> but, but the yeah, the movie was entertaining. Uh, its premise was BS, but um, what the what the guys did, what the people did with the Uh, with the movie visuals was amazing. How
0: would you like the fact, though, that she was sort of reluctant about being an astronaut? Like she was sort of (laughs) like compared to what you had been through. What am I doing here? You know why? All that was so hokey that it's hard to
1: to deal with. You know, most people dream of being an astronaut and, and, you know, to put somebody in her place with what sounded like she had minimal training. I mean, (laughs) well, it doesn't happen. Comment on that, but it doesn't happen now. But imagine though, if we have commercial spaceflight, you know, people, you're not going to train somebody to go to a, a hotel in space. I certainly hope you're not going to train them for three and a half years, right? My dream for all that is that they figure out how to train people with minimal skills. Like when you and I go into a hotel today, we know exactly what to do. We go to the desk, they give us a key card, we go to the room, we put the key card in the slot, the door opens, we Turn on the TV with the remote. Uh, we crank up the microwave if we're going to heat something up. We run the coffee maker. You know, that's what we need when ordinary citizens begin to go into space, right? You need, you know, who wants to do it if it's going to take two years of training to get to space? You, you need it to be um, relatively painless, I think, for, for the people, which means we have a lot of work to do. But that's just Clay's philosophy, no one else's.
0: And, and, and why did you, why'd you finally retire from NASA? Um, I was, uh,
1: essentially told I didn't have the right stuff anymore. Uh, how were you told that? Uh, you'll have to read the book. It's a a good story. Well, I think it's a good story. I was, uh, I was called in and asked about my future. And, um, when I gave them my response that I wanted to fly again, but I wasn't ready now because my children needed their dad at home, but I would love to fly later uh, I was summarily dismissed as, okay, then you're done, basically. They didn't use those words, but... Um,
0: was there an ageism thing happening, or, like, did they say you were too old now, or...? No, uh, what they
1: said was they had better choices than me to
0: fly in space, hmm. uh, which was
1: pretty hard to hear. Uh, it was untrue. Uh, yeah, there were others that were better, but there were many, many, many that flew again that were not. Hmm. Um it was a numbers game. Uh, they were look, I think they were kind of looking to get rid of some people. And, um, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't give them the answer they needed, which I'll fly tomorrow, uh, I couldn't give them that answer. Right. Did I, I, I felt that I wanted to fly again, but I wasn't ready to put my family through the tax of two and a half to three years of travel and training again. Right. That's a big, it's a big commitment and, to me, your family has to be on board with that commitment. Yeah, My kids were at the age where I wanted to be there for their football games and their volleyball games and all that stuff. And if I had a few years so they could graduate and go to college, then I could fly again. Um, but they didn't see it the same way. Uh, it was a tough day when I heard that. It was even a tougher two years when I tried to hang around and, and wait out the management that was there. Uh, when I waited them out and got the same answer again, uh, even more, uh, not cutthroat, but e- e- even more, basically the answer I got when I asked, I'd like to flag in, is that possible? No, huh. with no explanation. And, well, could I have a role in this organization to utilize and capitalize on my experience and expertise? No, So that pretty much told me that it was time to go and NASA had offered an early retirement option. So um, that was fortunate in that I could retire and maintain my health benefits uh, with the government, which are are pretty good. And and now I'm on a new adventure and that adventure has been good. Would I love to go to space again? Absolutely. Would it be new to me and different? No. If I went back to space to the station, I'd probably be bored because it's the same thing. They're doing the same things I was doing. Uh, when I was up there. Um, but once you touch and taste microgravity, you always want to taste it again.
0: Well, well, what do you do now? Like what, what are these new adventures that, that keep you as kind of excited as, as you were for so many years before when you were, you know, striving to get into space and then getting into space? Like, how do you keep yourself, uh, that with that level of excitement?
1: Well, i I do public speaking, motivational speaking. I love to do that. Um, I especially love to tout NASA and and why she's important. And the nice thing about that is I don't have to use NASA talking points anymore. Right. I can I can speak from the heart. I can speak truth. I can speak from my experiences of what really happened to me, what actually happened to me, but why NASA is important and what we do is important. And that's fun. Uh, I teach part time at Iowa State University where I got my master's degree in aerospace engineering. Uh, I enjoy that. I, you know, I'm part of their motivation force, right, to get kids into aerospace and engineering in general and to keep them there and to graduate them there. So we're doing some exciting things at Iowa State. And then the third thing that that has been a big focus of mine and it will be for the next six or eight months is uh, my first book is coming out in June uh, called The Ordinary Spaceman from Boyhood Dreams to Astronaut. Um, You know, and, and that's the story. It's about a guy who I consider myself pretty ordinary and I want all those other ordinary people out there to think that they can accomplish and dream and do the things that I did as well. So those three things are keeping me pretty busy. Plus honeydews at the house and uh, my son's a football player in college. So I travel to watch him. Um, My daughter's big in acting and volleyball and all her activities. So I'm having a good time with the flexible schedule. Uh, You know, I don't have to work 60 hours a week if I don't want to. And, I can support my wife and, and her career. Uh, so it's good. Retirement's good. I didn't realize that when I first left NASA, but uh, it was the right thing to do.
0: Well, I can't re- wait to to read your book. It's coming out June 1st, I think, 2015. Right. And uh-huh. uh, with the title again? Is The Ordinary Spaceman. The Ordinary from Boy- Spaceman.
1: A Boyhood uh, Dreams to Astronaut, yeah.
0: Was it hard to write the book to sit down and like actually write uh, 60,000 words or however many words it is? <clears throat> book writing's uh, hard. Well, you
1: know, what I started to do, and I don't know that I ever had a book in my dreams, but uh, what I did was when I began training as an astronaut, you know, we do some pretty cool things like the living underwater on Aquarius. And so uh, during that effort, one of our jobs was we had to write short journal entries and NASA would post them. This is way before social media. So NASA would put them on a website and hope that people would go read the stories. Well, I really liked writing those stories. Uh, I thought my stories were good. Other people really liked them too. And so after that, as I went and got assigned to fly in space and I traveled to Russia, there were very cool things that would happen periodically in Russia. You know, your first suit fit or your first uh, trip in their centrifuge and So I began to write short stories that NASA posted on their blog. And as I got deeper into it, I thought, you know, this might make an interesting book. So I had the beginnings of a book, if you will. And I did the the journals for myself and for NASA all the way through my first mission and landing. And then uh, as I uh, got through that, I had met a young lady named Nevada Barr, who's a New York Times best-selling mystery writer hmm. And Nevada encouraged me to write a book uh, she wanted me to write a murder mystery in space which that may be coming but we'll see but uh, I said well I feel more comfortable just making this thing a book first right to see what the process is like so uh, she was very helpful in giving me advice and and pointing me to people I could talk to uh, but I don't have a ghostwriter. this is just clay uh, and I think the book is turning out nicely um It's very exciting, it's very fun. Was it hard? Oh, there are times when it was frustrating, but I don't know that it was ever hard. It took me, once I retired, I worked pretty hard for about five months to pull it all together into a manuscript. Uh, Fortunately, I found one publisher who would bite, and that was the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, Given that I'm the first and only astronaut from the state of Nebraska, you would certainly hope they might be interested. Um, and they have a history of good space books, uh, to, to turn back to. So, uh, with their help, uh, I'm putting out the book on June the 1st and it's getting very exciting. You know, now things are really starting to happen and, uh,
0: that, that is exciting and you're very accessible on, um quora which is uh the q a site q u o r a you're you're very people can ask you questions you answer them i can sit, tell you're, you're you're a good writer and you're very concise in your answers uh i'm really looking forward to the book it's going to be exciting well thank you uh you know people can follow me
1: on twitter i'm at astro underscore clay my website is www.astroclay.com and then i can also go to my facebook fan page which is the facebook page And then I think you slash Clayton Anderson or Astro, sorry, Astro Clay. And you can find me on Facebook as well. So between those three social media sites, uh, I try to stay active. I love to interact with the people. I think that's what it's all about. It's not just about me posting stuff. It's about me, you know, trying to interact with those that that post back. And uh, Quora, I found to be very, very fun, um, It takes a little more of my effort in writing my answers because I want them to be legit, and I don't want, you know, I don't answer questions that I don't know the answer to, right? Right. Um, And people pose some very bizarre questions on that side. uh, Someone even
0: asked you if you ever saw a UFO while you were in space. Well, you know, it was interesting because
1: I responded no, because I said all astronauts see UFOs, and I said no, they don't. Well, their definition of UFO included a piece of space debris, right? A piece Ah. of you know well that to me that's a different when you you and i say ufo at least me the first thing i think of is you know silver flying saucers that are zooming around in space and sending lights down to earth and i think that's what most people think and so that's how i answered the question so i had to reply to that person and say hey here's how i was coming at the question i wasn't talking about dust and debris yeah i saw dust and debris <laughs>
0: Well, again, Clay, thanks so much, and I'm looking forward to the book. Uh, I really enjoy your answers on Quora, so again, I know this is going to be a great book and and very inspirational. And thanks again for for joining me on my show. You bet. It was a pleasure, and uh, I'll look forward to the next time, sir. Excellent. Thanks, Clay. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye now. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.